Well, good afternoon. Thank you so much for downloading our Discovery Fellowship podcast. We have our sermon for the week right now with Pastor Rick going back into the series in the book of Acts. Pastor Rick is talking about what it looks like to follow Jesus, to abide in him, and how that plays out in your life. As always, if you'd like to reach out to us, email podcast at dfchurch.com. And if you haven't done so already, please take a minute, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you have found this podcast. And leave us a review as well. Let us know what you think. Now, here's Pastor Rick. Thank you for that wonderful worship this morning, leading us before our holy God and Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome to each one of you this morning who are a part of our worship time here in the building at Discovery Fellowship. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online this morning, perhaps from home, perhaps from travel, wherever you are. We appreciate your being a part of our time to gather together, if not in person, at least in spirit. We have been studying together over these weeks the book of Acts, talking a bit about how unstoppable the Holy Spirit of God is and how the gospel goes forward in spite of opposition and makes progress. And we're going to continue in that vein this morning. We are up to Acts chapter 18. If you're present in the room and you're wanting to use a discovery Bible, you'll find it on page 948. Uh, For those of you who are present here, you can see that we have some tables set before you this morning. I don't know if you can see that online or not, but we are going to be participating in the Lord's Supper or communion this morning in just a little bit. So I want you to be thinking a little bit about that, preparing your heart for that. For those of you who are at home, substitute with whatever it is that you have handy that uh, represents both the blood or the death and and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll partake together in just a little bit. So the adventure continues in the book of Acts, and as I said, we're going to be in chapter 18. What I'd like to do is read that for you this morning, if I could, and that sets our context, and I think you'll find here that uh, this chapter begins just very simply, as you can see before you. It simply states, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. The after this was uh, the Apostle Paul's address to the intellectuals, to the thinkers, to the philosophers of Athens on Mars Hill. If you were here last week, we studied about that. And therein he clearly, very clearly and succinctly explained to them, to those folks who were listening, uh, live and in the audience, how off base they were in their theology. Uh, and how God was patiently drawing them to himself and to Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord and Savior. And so, having spent his time in the university of the world and engaging there in Athens with the intelligentsia, he now travels about, as you can see on the map, about 50 miles by land to Sin City, Corinth. Uh, the ancient world's equivalent, perhaps we might say, to our own Las Vegas, where anything goes and everyone did. Let's pick it up at verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. 
Claudius was preceded by Caligula, and perhaps you know something of him, and he was followed by Nero. And so these were tough times in the Roman Empire, and particularly for Christians. And he, that is Paul, went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers or leather workers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they, that is the Jews, opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. That is, of course, the, the outward confession of an, of an inner faith that you have embraced. It is the normative expression of once you've come to a relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, you testified to that publicly by being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Verse 12, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, Folks, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, just see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Apparently he was a civil servant who had much bigger fish to fry, at least in his own estimation. Verse 18, after this... Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. He had not cut his hair for about a year and a half. We don't know what that vow was exactly about. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you, if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, back in Israel, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, actually north to Antioch of Syria. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So in that one verse there, what we have actually is the start of Paul's third missionary journey. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos 
a native of North Africa or Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, that is in the Old Testament, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that is to go back to Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be uh, rehearsing a bit the words of Scripture that carry on the narrative, the story of the progress of the gospel in the early church. Lord, thank you for these words. We pray that you would speak to us through them this morning. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Way back in 1987, We're going here from the sublime to the ridiculous, okay? Um, A dark comedic film was released in theaters, as you can see, entitled Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I would imagine that some of you have seen it, if not in the theater, then perhaps on DVD or what have you. But it was the fictional story of an advertising man who has to struggle with all kinds of obstacles and roadblocks and setbacks to travel back to his home in the Chicago area from New York in time to be with his family for Thanksgiving and his unwelcome traveling companion on his what turns out to be a disaster filled journey is a lovable oaf of a shower curtain ring salesman The movie starred two of my very favorite comedic actors, John Candy and Steve Martin. Now, I am this morning referencing the film, but I am not recommending the movie. Uh, It's R-rated. It's got all sorts of inappropriate language and profane humor. So while I am not per se recommending the film, there is one scene in the movie that I wanted to reference for you this morning, and it's one in which Steve Martin and John Candy are driving a rental car in a downtown city, and they are lost, and they are headed the wrong way down a one-way street late at night. And as they are obliviously driving along, another car passes them going the opposite or correct direction, and the husband and wife in that vehicle scream frantically to them out the open window, as you can see, you're going the wrong way, they shout. To which the driver, John Candy, turns to Steve Martin and he cluelessly says to them, how would they know where we're going? Now, as I said, that's not a great movie, but I think it's a great scene because uh, it actually speaks to something that is not only very true to life about direction, but also true to something that we just read about in our scripture passage this morning as well, and that is the way the right way. Throughout the book of Acts, people who became followers of Jesus Christ, perhaps you know this, were not initially initially called Christians, but were originally considered to be something that was known as the sect of, or even the cult of, the Nazarenes. Or else, they were called people of the way. 
And in fact, you find that designation no less than seven times in the book of Acts. And as we just read in uh, verse 26, the author Luke says that the faithful Jesus followers, Aquila and Priscilla, explained to this Apollos the way of God more fully. Perhaps you remember the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2 refers to Christianity as the way of truth. The author of the book of Hebrews says that Jesus' broken body, which we'll be participating in symbolically today, is the new and living way for us to enter into the most holy place. And the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, was known as Saul, and it was his primary mission and passion in life to arrest those who belonged to the way, W-A-Y. And so you see that all throughout, in many places, in the New Testament. In point of fact, Christianity uh, didn't begin as a religion, but rather as a movement, and movement requires direction. And so those earliest followers of Jesus were not just committed to the cultural practice or obligation of some sort of religious exercise, but they lived rather in complete devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, folks, was radical truth. Not only because it radically changed the lives of those who chose to follow the way, but also because it was a radical departure from anything else that had, frankly, existed before. Now, we saw this last week, if you were here with us in our study at Discovery, just how radically different this teaching about Jesus Christ, who he was, and what he accomplished was. As the Apostle Paul, remember, confronted uh, the people of Athens about all of their religions, about all of their forms and idolatrous worship. In Acts chapter 17, Paul spoke the truth about how all of their man-made religions, all man-made religions for that matter, the Greek pantheon of gods, all of these false idols that had been set up and venerated and worshipped were in fact nothing more than empty distractions and poor substitutes and empty dead ends drawing people away from the one true God. The God who was really there, the God who was and is seeking after lost people and wanted them to seek Him and find life now and for eternity through the person of the resurrected Jesus Christ. But as we saw once again in this passage, we read just a few moments ago in Acts 18, verses 6, 13, 17, the most powerful opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ came not from the pagans and not from other competing religions you might find in Rome or Athens or what have you, but rather it came from the Jews themselves. In Acts chapter 9, remember, the Apostle Paul, then called Saul, was a fervent persecutor of the church, and he desired to arrest those and incapacitate those who belonged to the way. In point of historical fact, by the first century, the Jewish people 
had prided themselves on more than 2,000 years of human history testifying to the fact that their patriarchs had uniquely been friends of God. And they had more than 1,500 years of history of having received God's law, His commandments, His precepts, His prescriptions, His institutes, and it was all called the Torah. And they believed that because Torah was the very words of God, that by knowing and by obeying the law, that that would please God and it would merit them eternal life. Jesus, in fact, pinpointed uh, the issue and he said this, I think, probably as clearly and as succinctly as anyone has ever said it when he directly confronted the religious leaders of his day. Listen to his words here from John chapter 5. He very pointedly said, you study the scriptures, the Torah, the law of God, diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so, for the Jews of the first century, Jesus was in fact the greatest possible threat. He threatened their way of life. He threatened their way of worship. He threatened the ways of the sacrificial temple system, the priestly service, the dietary and the ceremonial prescriptions. To them, Jesus was presenting himself as a substitute for the law and as an abolitionist offering a new and a different way for a faithful Jew The Torah of God was everything. In fact, for them, they referred to to the Torah reverentially as the way to live. It was the way to truth. It was the way to eternal life. And so it is no wonder that Jesus was an affront to their sensibilities. He was a threat to their security. He was an offense to their cherished beliefs and traditions. When he proclaimed, you remember, to his followers in John 14, 6, even as he was simultaneously investing new meaning into the celebration of the 1,500-year-old Passover feast on the night before his crucifixion. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The very things that up until then, every faithful Jewish person understood to be the province of Torah. And then, as if what Jesus said was not blasphemous, Enough, Jesus added, as you can see there at the end of John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father, Yahweh God, but through me. Jesus claimed for himself not only exclusive rights to the truth, but the sole and exclusive way or means of access to God the Father and eternal life with him. Before Christianity became a religion, it was known primarily as a distinctive way of life. Now, that word 
way comes from the Greek word haras. It is used more than 100 times in the New Testament. And it is typically translated either literally or metaphorically as a path or a road or a journey or a way to go. And uh, it's used in scripture of Christians because a Christ follower is a person who lives a certain way, not just believes a certain way. Remember in scripture, um, James chapter 2.19, we learn that even the demons in hell believe in Jesus. So it's very possible to believe something, right? Or to embrace something cognitively or to know that it is true, but it not affect the way that you live. And Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Being a follower of the way was both a matter of belief and practice. Correct belief and right living. It's interesting, uh, in light of the way that Christianity is oftentimes viewed today in our culture, Christians are sometimes perceived to be narrow-minded, exclusivistic, superior thinking, and, and all of those sort of negative connotations. But the earliest converts back in the day to the way were people from all of the various social classes and various ethnicities, gender, and political leanings. This was one of the things back in the day that made the way so unique and so appealing to people. It was open to everyone. And so over time, the followers of the way began to be called Christians. Now, it actually took about seven or eight years for, for that to happen. Uh, they were not called Christians back in the day because they were you know, particularly pious people who lived uh, morally superior lives with a, with a sort of a condescending attitude towards everyone else around them who didn't believe as they believed. They began to be called Christians, that is, Christ-like ones, because they imitated their leader, Jesus Christ. Living the way of Jesus means living the way of the cross, dying daily to self, living a life of mercy and kindness and forgiveness and compassion and humility and selflessness with joy, love, and thanksgiving. Walking the way of the cross means that we honor Jesus' sacrifice by living the kind of a life that he modeled for us. Walking, we could say, in the way of love. Our fundamental role uh, is to be God's love in this world, right? And to help restore and reconcile people to unity with God by pointing them to a relationship to be had with Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. And we have that responsibility and that opportunity to model to people around us a different way of living 
when frankly, folks, our world desperately needs loving models of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Jesus said that a person proves they are on the way if they abide, if they stay in his word. And one of the ways people recognize, those of us who are born again, is how we stay, how we abide in the word, and how we love one another. In John chapter 13, the Lord said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And some of the final words that were given uh, to the apostles by Jesus came again on that night prior to his crucifixion, just after he had instituted the Lord's Supper. And it went like this in John 15, By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You know, what makes the way um, unique from every other so-called path to God is that the leader of the way is Jesus Christ, who is both 100% fully God and 100% fully human. The one who willingly surrendered his life to die, then was raised from the dead three days later, and is, in fact, alive today. And so, this morning, we are reminded that the way of Christianity is the only religion where all total responsibility for personal salvation rests on the founder and not at all on his followers. The person who is on the way has become born again by repenting of their sin, receiving Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement or forgiveness, and accepting him as their Lord and Savior. And that means following him on the way daily by spending time with him in prayer, by giving attention to his written word, the Bible, and by living commands that he has given us to be like him. And by sharing that good news to achieve the goal of making disciples, of building up people all over this world. Today, if you are not on the way, but you desire to know Jesus, today is the day that you can start a new path, a new way that leads to eternal life. It was the ancient oriental philosopher Lao Tzu who famously said, and you know this quote, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. And so it is with following the way. The journey begins with the decision on your part that will change the course, the direction of the rest of your life and your eternity.